Dr. Hawkins. It's a blessing to have you a part of season two of the thesis. You were one of the first brothers that I talked to about launching my podcast. I wasn't even sure if I had a name of the podcast at the time. I just knew you were one of the brothers that I wanted to have on my podcast. So as I've said to you so many times before we even get started, I want to thank you before we even get started, whatever information that you bring forth based upon the questions that I ask, um, I'm sure that only not only will I be enriched, but our listeners will be enriched. So I thank you and I want to give you your flowers way in advance. And excuse me, I meant to say, brother, Dr. Hawkins, <laughs> you know, I, always, you know, I don't want to lose sight of that. Um, but also, we've had several conversations offline that had led to this particular conversation. And I hope that these conversations that we had offline will be as amazing online and building through these questions. And it's my hope that our listeners will have a clear understanding of the potential reasons associated with the low numbers of African-American men in K through 12 education. How do we deal with covert and overt biases right. that exist in the education system? Right. Uh, the decreasing numbers of African-American youth, primarily males, attending universities and the resurgence of community colleges. It's my hope that after I release this particular chapter, that I will follow this chapter up with a another conversation with another one of our brothers, uh, mm -hmm. Brother Dr. Dudley. So we could talk about uh, the importance and the, the reemergence of community colleges Mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned, we have so much to discuss, so let's go yeah. ahead and unwrap that. As I normally do on my podcast, I give our listeners the opportunity to get a brief introduction of who you are as a person. So if you could, please give me, our listeners, a brief introduction of what makes you a subject matter for this particular chapter on the thesis. Awesome, man. Um, awesomeness. If anybody who follows me, they know that that is my word, awesomeness. Um, just to kind of give it first of all, thank you, Brother Bernie, for providing this space for um, voices, you know, like mine, particularly Black voices, Black male voices to really kind of, you know, come in and unpack um, topical issues, you know, dealing with race, dealing with education, dealing with, you know, how we position ourselves as, you know, public intellectuals, you know, within white spaces. So, um, you know, kudos to you for, you know, having this brainchild of a podcast and, and actually moving forward with your vision, man. That's, you know, um, that's just unbelievable. Um, a lot of our visions get stuck in dreams. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I definitely commend you for just taking that leap of faith and creating in this space. Uh, to your question, 
Originally, you know, I am from Wilson, North Carolina, which is a small town east of North Carolina. Um, you know, grew up there. Uh, of course, I uh, my childhood experience with regards to education is very similar to many um, African American um, men. Um, it at point at some points in times it was very traumatizing, um, and then other times, you know, it was rewarding. Um, you know, all the while. Um, just being in a home that centered education first. Um, you know, my dad, his his mother was an educator and um, he had opportunities and access to education, um, you know, which is kind of juxtaposed to my mom's family who did not have access to, um, you know, just, you know, education past, um, you know, high school, what was difficult for many of our brothers and sisters to access, you know, the level of education that we talk about in the in terms of like college and um, other, um, you know, terminal degrees, what have you. But they met um, and, you know, with their union, um, they were able to, uh, you know, combine their spirits and produce me, which I am so grateful for. Um, after graduating high school, I uh, transitioned to college, a four-year college. I earned a BA degree in history with the minor in cultural anthropology. Um, later on, I um, earned a master of science degree in counselor education. And most recently, I earned a PhD in education with a concentration in cultural um, foundations, cultural studies. Um, in my dissertation, I focus on the praxis of disrupting school spaces, um, culturally relevant pedagogy in a school-based mentoring program, um, exploring the nuances of mentoring and mentorship in the successful team aimed at reaching student success mentoring program for African-American um, young men, and where I am, where I was able to position them as public intellectuals. Um, so also, I am working towards a licensed clinical mental health certification, um, and I have been in the profession now for over um, 17 years, you know, starting out as a career developer, teacher, mentor, you know, et cetera. So, um, you know, just to your initial question, education just really kind of runs through my veins, even when I try to run away from it. And, you know, just here recently have been reminded that I need to embrace it. Not only do I need to embrace it for what it is, I need to embrace education as a black man who are looking, who pretty much is, is looking to, um, you know, inspire and move um, the next generation of black educators. So just in a nutshell, that kind of gives you just a little bit about me and hopefully through my responses, you know, our listeners can just kind of learn more about my why, um, why I'm here, why I'm still choosing to do um, K through 12 education, um, you, know, you know, within the space that I'm, I'm currently in right now and currently serving. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate that. There were some things that you mentioned um, in, in your answer to my first question, that as long as I've known you, uh, the great thing about our fraternity uh, is if you really take the time to work those relationships mm -hmm. and not use the relationships, it's not about what you can uh, gain from Alpha, but what you can give to Alpha. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so as I take the time to work those relationships, I learn every so often a little piece right. of, a, of a nugget from a brother. Like, wow, I didn't know that about you. And one of the things that I wrote down was uh, you said you're working on your clinical health license. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I wrote that down is because I'm not sure if you recall, I had a chapter in uh, season one called mm-hmm. uh, You Are Not Broken. Right. And one of the things that I mentioned in that particular chapter is, hey, I've even gone to therapy. I realized I had some traumatic issues that I needed to work on, some emotional things that I need to work through. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in trying to find a, uh, a therapist, you do not run into a lot of Black men as therapists. Nope. And I think I that's one of the, mm-hmm. beyond the negative thought processes that are, that are associated with mental health, Um, then there's also this, this notion of not having someone that looks like you can, that can potentially understand your circumstance or your, your plight here, uh, under the thumb of the United States, the corporation, United States. But, uh, that's something we can, we can go into at a, at a later time, but let's get, getting back to the the main topic of this particular conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had several conversations with not only you and Mm -hmm. other brothers and other friends about, uh, the importance of increasing the, the presence of African-American men in K-12 through education systems. Mm-hmm. This has led me to an assortment of questions, brother. Let's start with the first one. Mm-hmm. When did you first encounter an African-American male teacher in your K-12 through educational experience? And, okay. and why does that, that uh, particular man stand out to you? Um, you know, unfortunately, Brother Bernie, <laughs> this, this wasn't a hard road uh, to go down. Um, I can definitely count on the number, I can count on my hands, the number of um, black male teachers that I've had throughout, you know, my experience, you know, as a student in K through 12 education. Um, it definitely was in middle school. His name was Mr. Roundtree and he taught carpentry. Um, but it was not until high school that I would have Mr. Cyrus, um, who for geometry, and um, and it's so ironic how the world presents itself and how the world is kind of like, um, you know, shows you uh, who you're going to be even way back when with you without you even paying attention to it, per se. But Mr. Uh, Mr. Cyrus, he was a brother um, of our great fraternity. And um, and beyond that, um, you know, it was one of those things where my interactions with, um, you know, Mr. Roundtree and Mr. Cyrus, it provided me with, um, you know, just understanding this idea around just patience, um, you know, and however, you know, with it provided me around this idea of patience with, in terms of just African-American, you know, male teachers, Unfortunately, the attentiveness regarding care, affirming my intellect and my ability to be critical of the world in which I live and have lived came from African-American women or or black women, which, you know, is it's one of those things where I kind of feel, you know, just a little slighted a bit, um, if you will, although, um, you know, because 
even with Mr. Cyrus and Mr. Roundtree, for whatever reason, um, my interactions with them, it was of, it, I just did not feel at the time that even then that I was recognized as a black boy, um, you know, with the potential of greatness. And I don't know if it was because they were also learning um, to navigate white spaces in an all white world with white women, because at the end of the day, you have to understand, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm realizing this now as a black educator, as a black male educator, it's hard. You know, it's really hard to navigate those spaces and it does take a certain amount of energy to um, acknowledge other black boys, um, you know, and, and pour to them the potential that, um, and pouring them the love and the care um, that they need. So I don't know why I did not have that certain connection to them um, like I did with, you know, many of the Black women um, who were in education who really saw my potential. But, you know, to answer your question, um, Mr. Cyrus, you know, he taught me geometry. Awesome guy. Um, and like I said before, you know, Mr. Roundtree, but I really didn't get that connectedness from them, if that makes sense. A majority got that connection from the Black women educators who just say, hey, this young man has something. Um, he got it. I'm going to pour into him. And, you know, we're just going to go from there. Okay. So as I was writing these questions, I was thinking to myself about the first experience that I, I could go back to having an African-American male. Uh, teacher. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I cannot remember his name. If I could, oh my gosh, I will look him up. God willing, he is still on this side of the earth and I will give him his flowers right. if I could find him. But right. uh, quickly, I'll tell that story. I, I was going to, this was my junior high school years. I was in the seventh or eighth grade. Uh, no, I was in the seventh grade and I was struggling with math in this particular uh, year. And he would stay after school with me, work with me. Mm -hmm. My mom got me into this year round school, which I'm an advocate for year round schools mm -hmm. uh, based upon what it did for me academically at that time. Cause I really didn't take school serious. I didn't understand my intellect levels, although my right. mother did. This teacher said to me after an hour or two session of, of mentoring, and tutoring, he said, you know what, Brandon, you are brilliant. Right. And I sat back in my chair because it hit me like a ton of bricks. Right. He was like, I don't think you realize how smart you are to have someone, a, a, a black man say that to me in an educational setting right. blew my mind. And he was like, you will only be limited by your own limitations. And as, at that age, I might have been 12, 13 years old, maybe. Although I understood the words because he was speaking English and English right. is my first language. Right. It was the first time that I'm having that, that I can think about from an educational standpoint that someone was really trying to empower me to say, you can be as great as I am or whatever you think I am if you don't limit yourself. Right. But, you know, that that's a short end of that story. And once again, if I could find that teacher, I would give him his flip. 
It's, it's interesting that you were fortunate enough to have that experience, which is one of the reasons why I purposefully and I intentionally base my practice around. Right. Like I said before, this was no slight and this is no slight to Mr. Roundtree or Mr. Cyrus at all um, to be in that space in the early 80s to early 90s. And to I attended a high school that by definition would be considered a predominantly white high school where the culture of whiteness was very prevalent. So to be in that space and, and also he was maybe one or two of black men. And I'm talking about Mr. Cyrus. He was maybe one of two black men on staff. I know he had it hard to navigate that space. But why he didn't feel the need or why he didn't, you know, pull me aside when I was going to his trailer, struggling through geometry and actually saying, like, brother, I see you. I see that you're running for um, class officer. I see that you're doing work in the community. I see like I see you. Why that conversation never happened. I don't know. The only thing that I can glean from my experience with Mr. Cyrus is that this brother was hella patient without him even saying, I see you or I see your potential. The fact that he was taking time out of his regular scheduled program of teaching me geometry, let me know the content of his character. And what he was about without him even saying it. And I have to realize and put everything into a historical perspective. You know, now we are in a we are in a day where everyone, you know, well, I'm not gonna say everyone, but for the most part, we have been given the space to really say what we feel, when we feel, and how we feel. You know, back in those, you know, back when I was coming along in high school, I'm not quite sure if he felt comfortable enough to say, you know, this is a black, a young black man. I'm about to pour into him and I'm going to let the world know that I'm pouring into him, which is the reason why I'm so adamant about positioning black men as public intellectuals, because as a public intellectual, we don't hide the fact that we are pouring into each other. We are not um, perpetuating this idea that we are silent threats. So as a public intellectual, if a young Brandon were to come into my space, Brandon, you're brilliant. Brandon, you're smart. Let's put that on display, however that may look. So I don't want to spend, you know, I'm getting a little, <laughs> you know, just kind of, you know, emotional talking about it. But um, I just I just applaud that teacher and I encourage you to find that teacher to say, hey, look, this is what you were pouring into without you knowing that you were pouring into me. So, yeah. It and hopefully the universe allows me the opportunity right. to do that. Interestingly enough, one of the times I'm not originally from North Carolina. Right. Uh, one of the times I went home to my hometown and randomly at an outlet mall, I saw right. another black male teacher right. that I had at that same high school. And I said to him, because I could not remember his name neither. And I said to him, I was like, did you teach at Crest Hills Junior High School? And the school is now closed. Right. So and it's such a random thought process that he immediately stepped back and he was like, yeah, I did. 
And I was like, I thought that was you. You don't look like you've aged a bit. Um, you know, pigmentation is an amazing thing. It's a gift. <laughs> but I was like, it, it, it doesn't look like you aged one bit. Right. I told him, I really appreciated you because uh, I, I got some hands put on me in school <laughs> because I was busy running my mouth. And he told me, he pulled me to the side. And he said, the reason why you got them hands put on you is because you got a Napoleon complex and you need to relax. Right. And that's one of the things that I remember about him. Is right. I'm saying. But also on the flip side, he said, I understand how young black men, how young black boys operate. That's why I didn't send y'all to the principal office. Right. You ran your mouth. Right. He punched you in your mouth. Right. You deserved it. Right. And we kept going with math. Right. Right. Um, but I'm glad that you pointed out that you, uh, which, is, which is an interesting point and a great segue into my next question. Building, you know, this is going to be a building block conversation, bro. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, you said you went to a predominantly white high school, junior high school, I'm presuming mm -hmm. as well. So that's a good setup for, uh, did you find the education interactions to be different than the one provided by as you mentioned, black women and black men mm -hmm. are women or men of other ethnicities mm -hmm. and other gender groups. And if so, how? Um, like I kind of mentioned earlier, uh, you know, slightly, um, and I kind of mentioned this, that, you know, there was a sense of patience, you know, particularly with the Cyrus that he had. Um, but it wasn't really, um, you know, until I really kind of encountered um you know, black women who actually kind of affirmed my, for one, they created space for my voice. Um, they did not seek to empower me, but created a space and opportunity and an opportunity for me to be self-empowered, if that makes sense. Um, they didn't come off as this, um, I'm this superhero, I'm this cape, I'm trying to, I have, I'm this superhero or superheroine, and I have this cape trying to save your life. They was like, brother, that, that ain't me. You know, we're just trying to, they created that space and placed me in opportunity for me to self-empower myself. So, um, you know, to that point, you know, going to a predominantly, um, you know, white high school and then transitioning to a predominantly, you know, white university, uh, that transition was easy for me. Because, you know, just coming from a strong black household rooted in education, rooted in, you know, self-awareness, rooted in, you know, you know who you are and you know where you came from and you know whose you are. Um, I think it was just, you know, it, I was able to sustain even during those times that did not appear to be sustainable, um, particularly when I transitioned to um, a predominantly white college um, university. My freshman year, I actually um, I wanted to come home. I didn't do well at all um, my freshman year. Um, I wanted to come home. I wanted to, um, you know, be around people and blackness, particularly black educators who were able to understand me and able to understand my voice. Um, and, and, and a lot of times that is so lost when it comes to, um, you know, edu educational spaces that are pretty much inherently white. 
um, I did not receive that uh, a true sense of affirmation and comfort until I pursued my master's degree at an HBCU. But yet again, even in that space, I only encountered one black male. And again, and I don't know what it is, and it's, interest, it's interesting that we're having this conversation. And I'm not saying that they're not out there, but uh, again, even within that space, I did not, no one pulled me aside who was a male or black male saying like, hey, I see your potential. It has always been the black woman, which, and, and don't get me wrong, this is, and I'm saying this, and it's funny how we're having this conversation because the only thing that I can come to the conclusion now is that as black men, we just have to do better of unlearning some of those things where if I compliment you, then somehow that seems to be um, not masculine. Or if I praise you and celebrate you and validate you and, 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 and sing your praises, then somehow, you know, that diminishes, um, you know, where my position you know, and so I don't know, um, you know, you know, brother, I will say, and I hope I'm answering your question that I did yeah. say in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> that sometimes I go around the mulberry bush just to get to the answer. But um, to your original question, um, there was a slight difference, you know, between how I was treated um, and, and seen by African-American male um, teachers or just black teachers in general, you know, versus, you know, um, I didn't touch on how I was viewed um, by white teachers or white educators, but you can only imagine that was very similar to many African-American men who are, you know, pursuing education period that, you know, white folk, white teachers, um, you know, only saw you through a lens of, you know, a deficit lens. And that's unfortunate. I want to go back to a point and, and I meant to bring up this point before I went into this previous question, is oftentimes when it comes to Black men, we are not always viewed as intellects. Right. We are talked about in regards to our athleticism, our prowess, things that have nature, or acts of performing. And that's very unfortunate. But if, you, if our listeners took an opportunity just to go through Season uh, season one and season two, you would think that the numbers are different. Uh, I've had at least three or four doctors, whether they had a PhD, whatever they have their doctorate degree in, mm-hmm. on, thankfully, and let me make sure I say that humbly, thankfully, on my podcast, because like you stated, oftentimes we're not giving these spaces to talk about the things that we um, have some grievances with or mm-hmm. emotions that we may have from an intellectual standpoint, right. which right. me calling my podcast the thesis right. was strategic from the beginning right. because I wanted to offer these spaces, not only just for black men, right. but for, for African-American, black, whatever they want to call us this week. Right. <laughs> okay. Not this week. This week, and then next week will be something else. Whatever we are this week, whatever people right. self-identify themselves as. Right, you know, right. That's what I learned in my good PWI that I went to uh, for my collegiate experience. Right. Whatever we're called this week, I do want to provide the platform for people to, to give their input on different subject matters. Right. And it's interesting that it doesn't matter if you went to school in North Carolina 
California, Ohio, like myself, a lot of the experiences have always been the same of um, not understanding how young African-American children conduct themselves in moments of frustration. Like you stated several times, uh, you had teachers that provided those African-American teachers that you mentioned earlier provided patience Mm -hmm. because especially with young black boys, they need patience. They're rambunctious. They're all over the place. You know, we just, our learning styles are different naturally. Um, But this leads into it. Perfectly into my next question. From a research standpoint, since we're talking about the thesis, why are African-American, why do you believe, or from what you've read as far as research, mm-hmm. why are African-American men avoiding teaching, school counseling, right. and support staff positions? Right. And beyond that, what measures can school systems implement to increase the presence of African-American men in the school? But before you answer that, bro, okay, I read an article today and looked at a video. Mm-hmm. And it was talking about Guilford County Schools. Mm-hmm. Employees only getting getting fifteen hundred dollars or something over <laughs> two checks or something like that, mm-hmm. and then you're gonna get a five percent raise mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. two years. And right. you know, so I, I really thought that was very interesting that I ran into that today, considering what we're gonna be talking about in this particular conversation. So I'm sure the conversation about lack of income being provided is gonna be brought up. But go ahead, brother. Well, it's so funny, brother, uh, <laughs> brother Bernie. Um, many of us are familiar with the whys. You know, why um, not only African-American, you know, men or black men are, um, you know, just not going into the profession of education, you know, K through 12 particularly, but just men in general. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head um, with, um, you know, around pay. Um, you know, being able to sustain a family, you know, how, you know, is uh, a major factor. Um, You know, one of the things I often say, you know, is is that care to other um, career fields and career opportunities. Um, Fortunately, education just does not, as of yet, it it just hasn't provided that, um, that, that income um, you know, to, you know, to afford an opportunity to many men. Also, how we market the profession um, is another concern of mine. Um, the trauma that we encountered as Black male students, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I kind of want to leave you with this, you know, tell me, uh, how was education particularly, te- particularly teaching introduced to you? You know, think about that. Um, did you ever consider the profession? And if you did, what was what was the detour um, from going into the profession, you know, particularly K through 12 education? So there are a lot of things that we just need to unpack as to the reason why males are not, you know, going into the profession. And I do want to leave that question open to you. Um, you know, you know, how were you introduced into education? I was introduced to education from the standpoint of it was something I had to do. And it took teach. It was not until. I got into junior high school that I enjoyed going to school. Right. Because from that point, from K, now I went to school in Ohio, so we had mm-hmm. junior high school, which was seventh right. and eighth grade. Right. So from K through sixth grade, predominantly white right. uh, women. And they did not take uh, the, the time to invest in me intellectually. Right. And it wasn't, in, like I said, it wasn't until I got to junior high school that I right. was like, wow, I actually have a space here. 
But I do want to answer your, your first question. It's interesting that you, you asked me that question because I did initially want to be an educator. Okay. So what was the detour? Money. I was mm-hmm. offered a job right. by my senior um, thesis professor. And he slid the envelope across the table and he said, right. you know, got an opportunity for you to teach in Charlotte-Mecklenburg County, mm-hmm. which for my listeners who do not live in North Carolina, Charlotte, right. you know, Charlotte or Mecklenburg County is Charlotte. It's for the city of Charlotte in North mm-hmm. Carolina. I looked at, I opened it up because I was excited. I was going to be able right. to transition straight from school mm-hmm. into the path that I wanted to go into, which was teaching right. history, predominantly African-American history. Right. Um, and then I looked at the, I looked at the money and I, I looked at the, the offer and I said, well, where's the rest of it at? Right. It's like, that's it. And then he smiled right. at me like, like I hit right. the lottery. Right. And I was like, no, I, maybe I need to think about this a little bit more. And then right. I got offered another job working for an insurance company mm-hmm. and it was significantly more money. Right. And I was like, well, I'm going to take this because it was about the money. Right. At that time. And it, right. it let's be clear, it's still about the money. I mean, for my it's listeners, still, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, still about yeah, the money. Yeah. But I, I right. would say that it is unfortunate that education is not in heavily invested in right. and not a a profession that is deemed to be important like a right. a doc, a physician, right, a dentist, a lawyer. Right. An accountant and all these other things, and not to say that they are less than, mm-hmm. but these are the people that get you to that point. Right, right. You, can't, you know, you can't right. get to these professional schools without mm-hmm. having someone pour into you, right, eight through twelve. But that is a great question, and right. I, it is my hope that if I do, if we do have listeners who are considering going into the education field, um, you know what you're walking yourself into. You right. wrote enough papers, done enough research right. to understand. That if you do want to go into education and, and it's about the money also for you, you more than likely you're going to have to go to Texas, uh, <laughs> DC, Texas does play pay well, but once again, <laughs> it's one of those things too. Is like, um, you know, unfortunately, North Carolina still lags behind. Um, in, in, in at the bottom of the list. Of, you know how they're paying. You know the educators, and I will say, although I have you know sustained a comfortable living, I'm still not being paid my worth. And um, you know, to to your point, I also think it's just how we are advertising the profession. You know, particularly K through twelve, which just here recently, which is even one of the reasons why I was like, yes, I'm glad that you invited me to do your podcast because I as an educator, need to do a better job at marketing what I do. Mm. When I see, and, and I will say, the onus just does not fall on me. The onus falls on the community, as well as, you know, many of these school of education programs. And, you know, just particularly, you know, with me, is like the first thing, you know, prime example, my nephew who um, who is a sophomore at a university with North, within North Carolina, um, you know, as a young kid, he was like, you know, Uncle Jay, um, you know, I want to be a doctor. So, of course, what did I do? I automatically thought MD and ran with it, right? So the whole time he's going through elementary school, middle school, I would constantly remind him, remember, you said you wanted to be a doctor. 
Well, of course, right before his um, senior year of graduating from high school, he said, Uncle Jay, I'm thinking about, you know, um, you know, I've changed my mind. You know, of course, I'm still going to college, but I'm thinking about going into, you know, majoring in history, possibly going into education. I immediately frowned my face and balled my face up in a position that I'm like, really? You sure you want to do that? Like actually questioning, not really, not thinking and taking the time to think like, yo, this dude done watched you for 18 years. Do what you do best. Why that response? Versus, you know, like young man, like, wow, that's a bold move. Someone who isn't who is as intelligent as you are, you know, why not go into science, technology, education, you know, um, engineering, math, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, and, and really celebrating the fact that, hey, I want to go into this profession that has been um, standing for so long. I missed an opportunity to pour into my own nephew. And as a community and as a people, we have to stop doing that. Right. We have to unlearn that. Yes, we would like to be paid our worth, but we have got to stop shooting ourselves in the foot with how we market education, particularly how we market education to black, you know, Latino and indigenous, um, you know, folk, young people, particularly men. Right. So I say that to I say all that to say that. Um, you know, we have to do a better job within our language. We have to get black men excited about wanting to learn and most importantly about wanting to teach each other. Point period. And I didn't mean to go on a tangent, but you know, I just got a lot that I that I want to get out. We might have to we might have to continue this, brother. <laughs> well, dude, we could turn this into a part one and part two, but I, we I might I, have to. <laughs> I, I it's interesting because you, you said this might turn into a tangent and for, for our listeners, uh, just giving some insight into the development of this podcast. Initially I was going to call this podcast tangents. Right. Right. Because I go on tangents, you know, as, right. as we've mentioned right. before, right. as we mentioned before this phone call, you know, it's alphas. We got a lot of strong opinions and we can Brother, go on who tangents. You tell her, who you tell her. And one thing that you stated that not just about the education field, one thing that, you stated that I, I want to acknowledge and, and develop a little bit more as far as a brief conversation is. Mm-hmm. We as African-Americans, we got to stop being dream killers. Right. right. So whether it's that person wants to be a teacher, that person wants to be an MD, a dentist, right. because we can't see it for them doesn't mean right. that they can't see it for themselves. So even exactly. if you don't see the end of it, Agreed. um, we, we we have to practice enforcing the belief systems that or the belief that someone has in themselves. Here's a quick story. I had got accepted to a really great uh, public institution to attain my undergraduate education. And me and my mother were driving in the car. We were on a small brief vacation. And she was like, why do you look like that? What's going on? This is like a great oppor- great time in your life. I'm mm-hmm. like, I looked at my mother and humbly I said, I'm scared out of my mind. And she was like, what are you so scared about? Like, what's wrong? And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I got accepted to this school, but I'm afraid that I'm not going to make it. She was like, if you don't go, you're definitely not going to make it. 
Right. Uh, shout out to my mother for that. You know, that right. even as me being an adult, I still was her child and I respected her, her belief in me even more than I believed in myself. Right. And, and it, it took a brother. Actually, I wouldn't have even gone to that school if it wasn't for one of our brothers saying, because I went the non-traditional route. I went to a community okay. college. Right. And that's something we'll talk about briefly here soon. And that, as I came to a, a close of that particular part of my life, our fraternity brother said, okay, so what are you going to do next, brother? Now, he's a he's in uh, administration at mm-hmm. uh, Fayetteville Tech. And right. he said, uh, Brother Thomas, I, I really appreciate you if you, you know, if you get a chance to listen to this episode. But he developed me as a young man. And he said to me, what's your next step? And I said, I'm going to go around the corner. Mm-hmm. To Fayetteville State. Okay. And he said, no, brother, you're too smart for Fayetteville State. Now, I know a lot of Fayetteville State graduates. I'm mm-hmm. not, I'm just, I'm quoting here. Right, right. Not right. dismissing. Right. Brother said, you're too smart for Fayetteville State. And I didn't think anything was wrong with Fayetteville State. My mother matriculated from Fayetteville mm-hmm. State. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was like, but as smart as you are, once again, here's another moment for a black man right. that's in the educational system to tell right. me. As smart as you are, you should try some other schools. Just apply. Right. Worst thing they can do is say no. Right. And thankfully, I was accepted to a lot of great, predominantly white institutions. And I I chose the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. They they made a great offer. But the point is, we need more men, not only in in the teaching role, but we need more men in in administrative positions, we need more men in counseling positions. Can you imagine having a black man at Central, which is a high school mm-hmm. in Guilford mm-hmm. County of North Carolina? It's, it's in a city called High Point for my listeners right. who are not in North Carolina. Do you imagine having a black male counselor at, at Central or a couple black male counselors at a, at a high school called Dudley that could pour into young men and, and, and refine these young men and say, this is what I we I can see next for you. Right. Um, but you know, as as we transition to to my next question, um, I, I've recognized discussions around the notion of implicit and explicit biases that exist mm-hmm. in many school districts. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, these discussions overlook the plight and familiar experiences of many young adults, young males of pigmentation. Mm-hmm. Led me to this question. Whether by way of staff or parents, mm-hmm. what are some of the biases that you have encountered as a professional in this field? <laughs> oh, that is uh, that okay. is such a that is such a loaded question. Um, well, let's uh, let's unpack it, brother. Such you know a loaded question, and um, you know, unfortunately, I share um, similar experiences of many African American men um, in other professional fields. Like, um, you know, one, you know, when I first entered the profession, my age and level of experience was a factor. Um, I was 25. I was a 25 year old um, black man in a position where um, white and black women were the norm. So there was a constant performance of me having to assert my position and affirm my credentials. Um, And fast forward 16 years later. 
And even with the PhD, I still find myself engaging in a similar dance of having to assert my position and affirm my credentials. Um, and this performance, to be honest with you, brother, is is traumatizing. Um, and which kind of goes back to our original question as why, um, you know, many African-American men or black men are not going into education because we have a lot of traumatizing experiences, um, you know, even um, getting accepted into uh, the college that, you know, I chose to go to and being excited at the age of 18 and like, yo, I'm going to a, a college that I chose and was my first choice. Um, having a counselor tell me, oh, by the way, you cannot take your gun there, implying that I come from this neighborhood or this hood that uh, that warranted me to 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 take a gun, right? But um, you know, to my point, you know, it's just that performance of just just being traumatizing and tiring to say the least. Um, one of the things and, and the biases that I constantly run up against, you know, even as a you know professional counselor, is this mindset, is this deficit mindset, the idea that um, many black boys cannot right they can't do um you know and um and you know for an example um just recently right but well last year i um i put together a lunch and learn series for my uh fifth grade boys and i wanted to have discuss this discussion around um a book that centered um, them as black boys. And when I was pitching the idea to um, many of my colleagues, the first thing that they said were, was, you know, first, do you realize that, you know, this is, you know, March, April, there's no way you can get through that entire book with them. I was like, okay. Then I was met with, do you realize, mind you, we're talking about African-American boys. Then I was met with, you realize that some of the reading levels of these boys um, are not um, where they need to be. So therefore they can't read this book. Um, and you realize that many of them have, you know, uh, you know, learning disabilities. So it was all of this negativity you know, of what they can't do. And out of presenting this idea, not one of my colleagues came back to me and said, this is what they can do. So of course, me being the person that I am, I moved forth with the lunch and learn. You know, where we talked about, you know, um, you know, identity and sustaining identity and what that means as a young as a young black boy, you know, in the fifth grade. Now, granted, the fact we weren't able to finish the book. But however, um, you know, to that, to many of my educators who, um, you know, surprised, many of their reading levels were indeed up to par. And it's just that thing that uh, that really just frustrates me but that because, you know, even and, and let me just go back to one thing that you said. Sometimes as black educators, we think that we're doing such a great job um, when we encounter young boys like you and I you're too smart for Fayetteville State, when actuality, homeboy should have been saying you're exactly what Fayetteville State needs. 
That's let me un- let me unwrap that for a second. And that's the on and that's the that's the kind of unlearning that we have to do. Now, my goal here tonight is definitely not to pit PWI against HBCU experience at mm-hmm. all, because what I have come to learn is that there is room for us all, and wherever you decide to go your mission and your intent and your responsibility is to disrupt that space. Especially if you see that space that um, are constantly perpetuating inequitable practices and practices that are just not just and practices that are not elevating black folk and black men. So whether it's Fayetteville State, UNC Chapel Hill, UNCG, once you go to that space, your job is to disrupt that space. So that's a part of deficit mind thinking is the fact that he felt as though that you were only good enough or that you weren't good enough to go to a space that educated your mom and educated my grandmother during a time period that, to be honest with you, I think was probably one of the best time periods to be educated as a black person, you know, woman or man. But anyway, um, well, let me but, unwrap that real quick, yeah, because okay. I, I think uh, I think that uh, what happens sometimes is some people look at HBCUs as deficient. Right. And it's like, instead of saying you could take your talent, which is happening a lot right now with this Mm -hmm. conversation with, I don't want to talk about athleticism too long, but this is also happening. But I know you're coming from. uh, Deion Sanders, Mr. Deion Sanders. Mm -hmm. He's a coach Mm -hmm. at a HBCU. And a lot of PWIs are getting mad because his recruiting team are saying, we our school can offer a, a great education mm-hmm. and give you an opportunity on the field. Mm-hmm. And this is an opportunity for a lot of these young men to think outside the box because just because right. you go to a PWI and they recruit you because of your athleticism doesn't mean does not mean you're gonna leave that school with an education with a degree. There was young men that looked like us that I went to school with who Unfortunately, brother could not read. And I wanted to cry because I I said to one of them, you're a senior in college, just like me. Mm -hmm. And if I'm looking at you, you're probably not going to get recruited, brother. Right. So what's your next plan? And he looked at me and said, I didn't have a plan after this. Right. Right. And I was like, so you stayed here for four years and you did not have a plan. But it's, it's unfortunate. There's so many things that we can, you know, like I said, this could turn into a, a mm-hmm. part two. But I will say right. that the main thing here is go and get something that is that you're passionate about, which we'll get into that in a second. Right. Because traditional education, you know, we're seeing a lot of changes that's happening in traditional collegiate education. But I want to I want to go into briefly. I want to go into another right. part because you talked about the biases that you've experienced as mm-hmm. being on the staff. Right. But you also kind of answered my next question, like, what are the biases that you are seeing other teachers place on young black males? And, it, and you kind of answered it. So I don't want right. to um, be redundant in that. But it's interesting to hear that there's all these notions with young boys that look mm-hmm. like us. Right. They can't read. They're not going to get through the book. And, and, and realistically, as you were saying, I was thinking to myself, like, 
didn't, it probably didn't really matter that you got through the book. Right. It was about the learning portion and the book was the foundation. The foundation, yeah. and, and not to cut you off, Brother um, Bernie, but not only did the foundation, but identifying a, a piece of literature where you, where you can see yourself in the literature, right? And also identifying because the characters in the book were their age, you know, and um, also, you know, going back to, you know, these biases is that, um, you know, many of these educators think that, you know, black boys are untamed, that they are rambunctious. But white boys, you know, boys in general, you know, are, you know, with based on my experience, exhibit the same behavioral characteristics. But yet white boys are characterized differently. Right. Oh, they're just energetic. They're just, you know, uh, you know, expressing themselves. Um, and there's a sense of acceptance that comes from both black and white educators regarding white boys that they don't necessarily take into account with black boys. So is so when we're talking about in the grand scheme of things, and I want to be clear, yes, I would like to see more black men going into education. But at the same time, I don't want to see those black men perpetuating um, rules around whiteness on how to govern black boys, because I think that is also counterproductive. And because I do not want to labor that (laughs) because I, (laughs) you know, some of my listeners have reached out to me and talked to me about uh, from season one, they've talked about my, uh, some of my thought process is going to right. going a little bit too long, but I will say this. Um, I'm glad that you concluded by saying that these are forms of white supremacy that we are dealing they with are. that are that are, are covert and overt. Mm-hmm. And yep. as you've mentioned before, there's traumatic issues that have happened to young black boys that have made them think, I don't want to add to the perpetuation of this. If my teacher is not encouraging me, if I'm going to my teacher and I'm saying I'm struggling, and they're looking at me like, figure it out. Or they're looking right. at me like, it's my problem. Do I want to go into this profession? Is this right. is this what right. I'm going to be doing if I thought about teaching? Right. It's because I had teachers throughout my education, from junior high school through the end of high school, right. that really cared about me, um, regardless of their ethnicity. Um, mm-hmm. I had some Caucasian teachers. Uh, Mr. Schomper, my, mm-hmm. my sophomore algebra teacher, really poured into me and some, uh, a lot of my friends. Right. Um, because we were struggling and just, we were struggling because we didn't take school seriously. Right. But I, I want to get back. I want to build off of the last point that you made mm-hmm. and, and building off of the biases that don't not only take place in education institutions, but in other forms of life. This has led me to many, many entities developing diversity, equity, and mm-hmm. inclusion teams. Do you think, that building these teams are a pathway to change or just a form of affirmative action, often leading to a bottomless pit of nothingness. <laughs> nothingness, brother Bernie. <laughs> Nothing. Well, I, well, I will say, um, you know, being the person that I am, I am an optimist and I am hopeful that um, diversity and equity and inclusion teams are working um, in the best interest of all people um, to preserve aspects of humanity, lived experiences, and to celebrate value and accept 
people's differences. Um, considering where we are as a nation regarding the idea around uh, anti-Blackness, racism, white supremacy, et cetera, et cetera, and Black folk, particularly Black male folk, more and more people and groups um, are beginning to say no, right? They are beginning to, you know, say, you know, we are not going to take the mistreatment any longer. You know, we've noticed that and we've witnessed that through, you know, the, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and other movements that have kind of come out of that. Um, you know, we, however, we do have many miles to go, but change is inevitable. Like, I'm an optimist at heart. Um, and sometimes, you know, my optimism, my, you know, my, my faith and my willingness to see the, um, the good in people, you know, oftentimes may get the best of me, right? But that's all I have, right? I mean, once you've gone through um, and once you have seen the way folk have mistreated Black folk, particularly Black men, you can't help but be optimistic, right? We are witnessing this optimism in, in real time with the conviction of Derek Chauvin, um, who murdered George Floyd, um, and the conviction of the three white men who murdered Ahmaud Arbery. However, and, and I say that very loosely because, because we are where we are, I have to take the small victories, right? Because even to me, those victories, we still have the written houses of the world who murdered those two people, but yet, you know, he was able to receive over uh, a million plus dollars to, um, to, to afford, you know, a defense team to acquit him of all charges. You have to be hopeful that some good is going to come out of that. We, we still need to demand you know, justice for Trayvon Martin, um, Breonna Taylor, um, Sandra Bland, Eric Garner, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Not to mention, you know, the January 6th um, insurrection of the United States Capitol building. I mean, so I'm not saying this optimist, uh, this optimism that I have, I don't want people to think that it's just laced with rainbows and unicorns, but as a black man, who is preserving and protecting his peace and guarding his sanity, I have to be optimistic. I have to be. I have no, I, I can't, right? Um, so also to see this, this form of change, we must unpack what it means to be diverse. We must unpack what it means to be equitable. And we must unpack what it means to be, you know, inclusive. Because as of right now, sitting on this DEI board that I'm sitting on, um, you know, everybody's meaning is not the same. And I'm not saying that everyone, when it comes to DEI work, one, it's messy work. Two, my definition of diversity has to be in line and in tune with the next person who's sitting next to me. I can't define diversity by just black and white people. I can't define diversity by saying, I can't, you know, define diversity, um, you know, 
with the idea in mind that, you know, all Black people are together. So therefore, um, not to consider, not to consider that, um, you know, we are not monolithic people, right? So if I'm, if I'm defining diversity, I have to understand that even with people who look like me, we are different. And if we are not taking that into consideration with the definition of diversity, then at the end of the day, we can't, you know, it is going to be this bottomless pit of nothingness. We have to understand what equity, what equity really means, right? It is a call for justice. It is a call to give access to people. It is this idea of a sense of fairness that if I am if I am engaged in a group of marginalized folk and I see that they are being treated unfairly, I'm not going to say, hey, they should be treated fairly. I am going to eventually embody that that spirit of a co-conspirator or that that spirit of an accomplice to 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 march with them and move with them for this sense of justice that we're all seeking. And, you know, we have to understand that inclusiveness does not mean tolerance. Inclusiveness means acceptance. Like I accept you for who, for everything that you're bringing to the table. So stop using diversity, equity, and inclusion as this buzzword just because it sounds good. And to your point, you know, once we begin to understand what diversity means and equity means and inclusion, it won't be this bottomless pit of nothingness. I don't, when I say this bottomless, to our listeners, when I say this bottomless pit of nothingness is because it's even sad that we even have to have this conversation in 2021. Our brother, Dr. Martin Luther King and other men and women fought for equity fought right. for diversity in the 50s to 60s and we're still talking about it right. to this day right and i think brother king recognized that um and, I, and i'm presuming here right my presumptive right. measure right. i don't want to receive any emails from anybody <laughs> <laughs> my presumptive measure brother king said i believe i sold my people into a burning house right. i think brother king recognized that he had concise thoughts and plans, but recognized what he was ultimately up against. Right, right. Um, in the bigger picture. Right. Hence the reason why I say things like nothing was fit. Right, right. Hence the reason why we're even talking about this in 2021. But I'll right. close in saying this to, to you and to our listeners. Okay, we got diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. You know, I hope it doesn't become played out like everybody's saying they want to develop right. something organically. Right. Uh, that's that, that's people's word. Now I want to do this organically. Right. I hope that, okay, if we are given a seat at the table, are you going to put other people on that look like you? Because right. that's the other problem that people that look like us have is we don't want to share the information. Mm-hmm. I sent a, uh, a few of our brothers, a certification proof that I received. Uh, for some training that I went through. And one of our college brothers said, man, you are leading the way. And I said to him, well, that's what aces do. <laughs> Just joking, right? right? But being dead serious. Right. I said, uh, right. that's what aces do. Right. And I was like, you know what? My word is bond too. If you really want to know 
how to get to other levels of success, which is what we're going to transition into. What are other pathways to economic and education success outside the realm of university education? Because this brother said, hey, I really want to know. We have a we have a program called C2C. This can be another form of C2C for us. Right. But with that being said, this leads mm-hmm. perfectly into, I got two more questions for you. Right. I hope we can, right. we can unwrap this. But right. there have been many articles being mm-hmm. released that are discussing the concern that many universities or colleges are experiencing a significant decline in male students. Right. Now, they're not really making it about ethnicity at this point. Right, right. But there is a decrease. I have not read many articles that specify African-American men Right. or Latino men departing right. from the traditional education system in droves. However, mm-hmm. um, if you could please provide your input on what you think is causing this negative shift in African-American males or young men of pigmentation presence on or leaving many colleges and universities. I think it kind of goes back to what you said earlier about um, how we have positioned uh, you know, the community college experience or the fact that we, I, I'm starting to hear um, a buzz around um, infusing vocational education back into um, our K through 12 school system. I mean, well, let me rewind. We do have, and I'm thinking of, we do have certain programs, because I'm thinking of a school here in Guilford County, where they do specialize, you know, in, you know, those, uh, what we would consider those vocational programs, like your, you know, electrical work, your heating and air, um, logistics, um, things like that. But for whatever reason, for whatever reason, within the Black community, we do not elevate vocational programming within the African-American community. And I'm just speaking for us, for whatever we have. And from a historical, like, again, these subjects are just so complex. So to my listeners, if I don't hit on every point that you're thinking about, please know that um, you are in position to add to the conversation. Um, So this is not a response that is the end all and be all. But I will say that, you know, to your question, I think is how we're just marketing education period. I think we need to reimagine what education is. I think that we need to elevate the community college just as high as we elevate the four-year college and university. Um, It is so funny that many that um, I'm thinking of one of my good friends who just happens to be, you know, my fraternity brother, he went to the community college first and he is a professor of chemistry at Johnson C. Smith by way of um, the University of um, South Carolina and, and did a, um, a fellowship at Wake Forest. So is, but at the end of the day, you know, if you were to, and I'm just saying this from my experience as a high school counselor, I have mentioned the community college to students as a way to one, you know, um, offset the cost of college. And what they hear is that I'm not good enough to go to a four-year college and university. And, um, but that's another, you know, conversation for another time. Um, I think also, even with the C2C program, I understand our mission is to go to high school, go to college, go to work. 
But there's, and correct me if I'm wrong, how much attention are we giving to that population of young men, a young men who want to go and just receive a vocational trade? We can sit here all day and say, yeah, um, plumbers make X, Y, Z, HVAC folk make X, Y, Z. But how often do we actually intentionally um, celebrate that? The well, first thing- quick, <laughs> quickly, I think, and this was, this was mentioned on an episode that- uh, I think it was Brother Caldwell. Did Brother Caldwell that? talked yeah. about is, the, it, let's be how do I want to say this and be make sure I'm politically correct? Because that's another one of the reasons why a lot of young men are leaving the collegiate spaces because right. having testosterone and being attracted to women of the opposite sex right. has become a bad thing. And now you got now 10, 15 years later, you you the junior deacon at your church, and now because you flirted with somebody on campus, now you got a right. problem. Right. But um bro- brother Caldwell had mentioned that these other fields are not attractive to some women. Right. So if you say you're a plumber, right. you could be making $80,000, especially right. now because there's a shortage right. of plumbers. Right. If you're a plumber, you could be making $80,000, but, and I'm not, you know, I'm just choosing a right, field, right, right. not judging the field. Right, right. But an accountant averages $65,000, but an accountant sounds better to a person. Oh, you're an accountant? But that accountant ain't. But that accountant ain't telling you how much debt he in. Yeah, what university he went to, he or she went to. But so your net worth is not there, right? So again, I think that our concern, at least for me, is how we are. Is the language that we're using around? Well, definitely the language that we're using around certain professions, but most importantly. Um, is that, you know, the meaning that we're giving to these professions and, you know, what we, and from a cultural standpoint and from a societal standpoint, how we are assigning, you know, this meaning to the accountant versus this meaning towards the plumber. So again, this is another topic that's just hella, um, is complex within itself. And when you, and of course, I don't even want to tackle the obvious that, I mean, I mean, you, you led with the fact that some of the articles that you're reading are, are not even addressing, you know, the whole, you know, school to prison pipeline as to, you know, that many of our, you know, Black and Latino brothers are finding themselves pretty much kind of caught up in this conundrum of, you know, our criminal justice system, right? So that's another factor. Um, but at the same time, it's like, I think most importantly, you know, aside from this, you know, school to prison pipeline, we need to address how we are assigning meaning to education, period. And oftentimes people connect traditional air quotes, right. traditional education right. as a rite of passage on your pathway to economic success. Right. The reality here is. I often told people that that the traditional collegiate route is not for every student. It's not. It's not for every, and, and you're put, you know, sometimes parents or parent or whoever's your custodial um, person in place to guide you in life is often telling people to do something that might not be beneficial to them overall. And we forget that college and university is a business. Even if you think, even if you're going to, you know, for our listeners, even if you're right. going to a state school 
Right. And it's not, and I don't want to name off any other schools. Right. If, right. Let's let's put it this way: a lot of them schools that you see commercials for are for profit schools. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to name a school off, right? But just right. because they're for profit does not mean that your state school ain't about their business neither. Right, right. And so for profit I, too. Yeah. So I think you know, in a nutshell, you know, for our listeners out there, I'm not by any we we have to do a better job at finding a balance. We have to do a better job even for that for that um, young man or that young woman who is, you know, intelligent and, you know, driven. We really have to hone in on hone in on what they truly want to do and find the best pathway for them to go that route. I think what irks me the worst is talking with young people, particularly, and I'm using this as an example, particularly using, um, you know, is talking, conversing with um, young women that I've, I've counseled over the years saying, yeah, I went to XYZ, I got this four-year degree, but you know what, you know, Dr. Hawkins, I really wanted to be a stylist and a cosmetologist. So now <laughs> you have, so why did, why did you just do, do that, that in the first place? But is is what we've been taught, and from a historical. And I will say, all I, I can't help but bring back the historical reference. Back when my mother and my father, you know, were in you know high school, the community college was used as a gatekeeper for many intelligent black folk. They knew they should have been either at an HBCU or PWI, but whomever who vocational folk or vocational counselors is what they were called back then. They were using the community college or trade school as the gatekeeper. Break that down um, a little bit because this is something meaning, new I'm not familiar with. Meaning that, you know, using my family as an example, my, my father's family had the economic prowess and they were in this class system where college was was accessible but my mother who for their family who for all intents and persons lived on the other side of the tracks did not were not in this class system where they were afforded the opportunity to have access to a four-year college and university however she had brothers and sisters with the intellectual prowess who should have gone to college off gate, but because of their economic position within um, their community, they were overlooked and invisible. Or, you know, even that when I was, you know, transitioning through um, high school, being thrown, you know, this, this, this community college ticket versus recognizing this brother really could make it at a four-year college or university. So that's why I'm saying I can't, when we're talking about race and class, I can't help, we can't ignore that, you know, the community college does have a, you know, negative connotations to it, with particularly within our community and how it has been traditionally used. We have to find that balance, even though the community college and vocational trade schools have been misused, particularly, you know, when it comes to black and brown youth, even the military has been misused. Right. But at and the I, same, go ahead. I have a quick story about that. Um, yeah. My high school counselor was going over my GPA and courses that I had took after my sophomore year 
and he had said to me, and this is another person I wish I could I could find him. Right. Not for the same reason, but for a decent reason as well. Right. He he said to me, you know, Brandon, he turned his he turned his chair to me and said, Brandon, I don't see college in your future. And it threw me off because this is like an opposite of what I experienced with so right. many other men throughout right. my education experience from seventh until tenth grade. Right. And I'm like, so what am I going to high school for? <laughs> right. You know, because right. I've, I've been told, like, you go to high school, then you go to college, right? Right. right. So what am I here for? And he was like, I'll tell you what, what might be your best solution. And I was like, okay. He was like, go to trade school, which in Cincinnati we had mm-hmm. a school. It was separate and apart, but right. you went to a separate school, but you still right. got your high school diploma and you got a you know certification. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was great advice, and I took his advice. Then he said, then what you could do is you could join the military. And I did that as well. Right. Uh, I wish he had said, if you really want to go to college or you want to go to a community college, you need to apply yourself. You're not going to apply yourself. Then refer to the other things that I'm saying. And he didn't sell it like that. So because he he sold it like, these are your options, I took those options. Yeah. Gave people gatekeeping let me push Gate, you yeah right. let me push you right. in the direction that i think is best for you right um he, in his mind he might have been trying to spare me future failures but it actually right. set me back right. um but as you mentioned there, there's we can unwrap this for right. another it's, hour it's, it's, it's a lot you know it's a lot for our listeners if you are a parent if you are an a, a uncle, a, a aunt, a grandparent, whoever, and you have uh, people in your life that are juniors in high school right, right. Or, or, or seniors in high school, mm-hmm. please allow them to listen to this. For right. the young African-American, Black American men that you have in your life, please allow them to listen to this and do not be a dream killer. I hope that high school students are hearing and seeing the complaints in the grumblings of our generation uh, of what some of our counterparts are experiencing in regards to education debt. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I hope that people are recognizing that our current president said he was going to give us some money or give you some money for your education debt. And that has not been done. Uh, So I hope that some high school students are recognizing that Maybe I don't want to be in the same level of debt as my mother, my father, my uncle, right. my whoever. Maybe I do need to think about other alternatives. Right. Uh, maybe maybe I need to think about being an entrepreneur. Maybe right. I need to think about uh, focusing on my passions. How can right. I generate income by way of my passions? Right. Maybe it'll be this generation that were born in the early 2000s that could change this mindset of what what are the pathways to success? Okay. But in closing, brother, if you had to give a thesis statement mm-hmm. regarding the topics that we unwrap today, what would that thesis statement be? By nature, I'm a framer. So I need to frame okay. it for you. Um, you know, to me, um, there has always been a love and a hate relationship between African-American Black people and the United States. Um, the harm from being kidnapped enslaved positioned as property and made to feel less than is still a wound that requires healing um, reconciliation and forgiveness um so therefore i argue 
that until we, and this is a collective we, because at the end of the day, Black folk, sometimes we can be complicit in our own struggle, if that makes sense. And some people may argue with me about that. You know, I argue that until we collectively begin centering African-American Black people, accepting their differences and positioning them as public intellectuals, particularly Black males, then we will begin to see a shift and we will begin to see a shift in the presence of Black men entering the presence of education, particularly K through 12 education. So my argument is, is that we need, we need to intentionally position and center Black men as public intellectuals. That is my thesis statement. Until we um, do that, then we're going to always feel as though that we are running this rat race. When we position Black males, and, and, and I say Black males because society hits us hard. However, however, they hit Black women just as equally as hard. But I will say until Black folk are centered in a way that white folk are centered, we won't ever begin to move ahead. And we won't ever begin to see this presence um, and this shift within K-12 education if we don't begin to center um, Black males. Brother, I really appreciate that. And I'm not going to add to it. I, I would say that there's so much that we unwrapped in this one conversation. And I, I want to take your charge that maybe we can have a part two to this conversation, unwrap some other things, because you know what? Much like this the premise of my podcast, I consider each episode to be a chapter and each chapter builds upon another chapter. Um, I would say to you, brother, thank you for your time. Thank you for bringing your thought processes, your expertise to our listeners. I want to thank you for your time. For anyone who is listening to the podcast for the first time, I hope that you have walked away from this chapter gaining some insight. We do not have all the answers. The Bible actually says, study and show yourself approved. Mm. If you want to learn some more, if you are walking away from this particular chapter and feeling like there's some things that we left unwrapped, please take the time to show yourself approved. Do some research, look more into it. But if nothing else, I want you to walk away from this chapter understanding that if um, you do not want to be a dream killer, a dream destroyer. I do not want to be having this conversation 20, 30 years from now about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm. For anyone who is listening to this, this chapter, if this is your first time, I want to welcome you to the thesis, a podcast where we unlock the thoughts of time. Please be encouraged.